So for the last two and a half months, we've been walking through really this highlight reel of the book of Luke, right? And in it, we have seen time and time again that religion is the reverse of the way of Jesus. It is the upside down, the opposite of what Jesus came to preach and to teach and to live and to call us to as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And then it's not just that it's the reverse of the way of Jesus, but that religion, really searching for any way to save yourself, to maybe get to God, to earn favor with God, that it is bankrupt, that it really has nothing to offer us ultimately. That what we do, what, whether it's we go to church enough, we're a good enough person, we give enough, we serve enough, we, we are kind enough, we're compassionate enough, that anything that we do, that ultimately those ways really don't amount to anything. That really, that's rooted in the fact that when we look for different ways to save ourselves, it's really all about us. It's about what we can do to get to God. It's what we can do to get favor with God. It's what we can do to get prestige, what we can do to sleep at night because now our conscience just lets us have rest. But ultimately, Jesus' way is radically different, isn't it? And what we'll see this morning is that religion isn't just some bad habit that we might have. It's not just some lingering thing that we should try to do less of and, and try to pursue Jesus more. No, it's really... In an insidious disease. It's a cancer. It's a sickness that will ultimately spread and destroy us. Because in our big idea this morning, as we wrap up our series, we'll see that you know, religion, it doesn't just want to be cruel or, or it doesn't just want to separate itself from, from sinners or it doesn't just want to call people to perfection. No, ultimately, it wants to target Jesus himself. It wants to silence and even destroy Jesus. But Jesus' way, it is the opposite, isn't it? It's the reverse. In our big idea, we'll see religion silences and destroys. But Jesus is the king who suffers and dies. It silences and destroys, but he suffers and dies. This morning, as we wrap up our series, we'll be in Luke 19, 28, all the way through the end of that chapter. And as we begin, we want to pray for uh, our missional partners. Usually we pray for a specific church, maybe in some way that we might have or hope to have a partnership with or perhaps a ministry that we love and support. And today we do want to pray for our partners, but we want to do it a, a little more broadly. Uh, I, I assume that you have heard uh, about the shooting that happened uh, in Chesapeake just a few days ago and the tragedy, the wickedness, the just horrible reality of what happened. Um, and we want to pray for the households that are involved in some way, those that maybe even work at Walmart, those that, that go and frequent to that store, and as well for the churches, the churches in our neighboring city, I mean just down the road, that they would be a bold representation of the gospel, that they can come with love and compassion of Christ. So let's pray. Let's pray together now, asking for Jesus to do what only he can do. Father, our heart breaks for our, our neighbor. Father, that you see and you know what happened with the murdering of those people there in Walmart just a few days ago. And you hate it. You weep. Father, our hearts break, they lament, 
over this horrible tragedy. And we ask that Jesus would come soon. That that justice would roll down. That we would see an end to the chaos of the world that was on display for the world to see just down the road. But Father, now as we wait for Jesus to come back and to right every wrong and to reverse the curse of sin, we, we know that there's the reality of tables that are one chair empty, that just over Thanksgiving they were looking forward to celebrating and they didn't have that joy anymore. Father, that they, they're coming home and their, their bed is maybe empty. Their friend, their family member, their, their co-worker is gone. Father, would you, through the peace and the comfort that only can come through the Spirit of God and the Gospel, would you bring supernatural peace and comfort to those involved, Father, those affected? Father, for those workers, for those that, that, that frequent the store, would you give tremendous supernatural peace and comfort? Father, we pray as well for the churches in Chesapeake. Father, that you would empower them with your spirit to be able to minister in ways that they have no clue what they're doing. They don't know what to say, what to do, what to not say, what to not do. But Father, would you through your spirit empower them to be able to minister powerfully with the good news of the gospel. In word, yes, and in deed. That they would show the gospel as they preach it. Father, help us as a neighbor to look for ways to partner and to serve those in need. Would you advance your gospel there in Chesapeake? And would you do it here in Newport News today? In Jesus' name, amen. So as we wrap up our series, we're going to be again in the, the last half of Luke 19. We've seen through the last few weeks that Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. And and last week, as as Jacob preached a great sermon looking at Zacchaeus, he's right about to get to Jerusalem. Then Jesus, right after that, he preaches to those around him a message of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is coming, that Jesus, the king, is headed to Jerusalem. Why? Ultimately, to suffer and to die. To die in the place of sinners. And here in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is right on the cusps of Jerusalem and then arrives into Jerusalem. So let's see what Jesus does as he's right on the cusps. He he can see the sign, right? He can see the Jerusalem sign, welcome to. What does he do? What does he say? What do we have to learn and apply from that today? Verse 28 says, And when he had said these things, these teachings about the kingdom of God, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's making his way there. He's almost there. And when he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, these are neighboring towns, neighboring villages, neighboring cities. Think think Newport News and you have Pocosin or Yorktown or Hampton. It's just right around the corner. And he sent two of the disciples. We don't know who, and it really doesn't matter, but these are two followers of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. It's a follower, a, teach, a, a student of Jesus. It's a believer. It's you and me if you're in Christ. And he sends them, and he says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. When you see the word colt, by the way, in, in this passage, this is a, a, a fowl of a, a baby donkey. All right, then that's going to matter tremendously later. Maybe underline that. This is a, a baby donkey. You're going to see this baby donkey tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it 
and bring it here. So I don't know if you know this, but uh, we now are in a season of Advent. So we're in preparation for remembering when, when Jesus came in his first Advent and longing for the day when he comes in his second Advent. Next week, we're going to start our Christmas series looking at really why Jesus came and that he came on mission. We'll hear actually a little more about that later in the service. But in Advent, we also, let's be honest, we, in this season, we can get caught up in, you know, wanting different gifts and things like that. I mean, who here has already done maybe some Black Friday shopping? Anybody? Maybe you went out or maybe you did some online shopping. I did a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did some. And I don't know what's on your Christmas list, like what you're wanting. But, you know, Jesus kind of has a weird request. He said, hey, go get me a baby donkey. And let's be honest, that's, that's kind of weird, right? If that's on your Amazon wish list, I don't think they have that, but I'll be honest, they might. I've not, I've not, not looked. Um, I'd actually be curious, so someone should let me know. Uh, but <laughs> Jesus, that's what's on his wish list, apparently. He wants this baby donkey, and no one's ever saw, sat on this baby donkey. Why? What's up with this? I mean, this is a really weird request. And also, it's not just like, hey, go order it, go pay for it. He's like, hey, go find this baby donkey and take it. Like, what's going on here? Well, let's keep reading and see why. He says, if anyone asks you, verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Why, why are you taking my donkey? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Wow. Now that's profound. You see, Jesus, in very subtle way, is just saying something that anyone would understand and, and, and go with in that day. That if someone was a lord, a king, that they really could make claim to any kind of property that they wanted. That was just kind of the culture of the day. But Jesus isn't just doing something subtle. He's actually saying something quite spectacular here. He's not just saying that, you know what, I am the Lord, I, I am the, the ruler here in this situation. But he is saying, I am the Lord. I'm the king. I am the one. And so here, Jesus is really proclaiming who he is. He is saying quite clearly, I am the king. Now what we'll see here is that he's not just going to say that he's the king, but he is going to show that he's the king. You see, what Jesus is going to do, and we'll see it very clearly, is he's going to ride in, into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you know this story, right? I mean, it's the whole Palm Sunday deal, right? Now this is Luke, he's talking to a Gentile audience, an audience that doesn't know some of the background of things like saying Hosanna or waving palm branches. So you're not going to see that in this passage, but this is that day. All those things are happening. And Jesus, he rides in on a donkey, right? Why does he do that? Why is Jesus saying, I am the Lord and I need this donkey? It's because Jesus knows. Because the Spirit of God empowered and inspired Zechariah hundreds of years before. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, saying that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. On what? On a donkey. And there, as he came in, that's how you would know. This is the sign that the king has come. And that this king, much like King David, who rode in on a donkey himself, is coming as the true and better King David. That he has come to save his people. And so here Jesus is saying, go get that donkey. The donkey that I have set aside and tell them, the Lord needs it. The king needs it. So what did the disciples do? Well, it says this, verse 32. So those who were sent meaning that the sent one, Jesus himself, he sent the disciples on mission to do something, to go away and to get this donkey, right? And he found it just as he had told them, of course. And as they were untying it, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? 
They said, the Lord has need of it. It happens exactly like the king said it would happen. He said, hey, I want you to go get this donkey. You're going to go see it, and if someone asks you, tell them that the king needs it. That's exactly what happens. But don't miss this. You see, Jesus has sent his disciples, his followers, on mission to do something. And what do they do? They obey him. They follow what the king says. And it's not just them, though, right? It's not just these two unnamed disciples. We don't know who they are. But it's the owner of the donkey, too. Now, it's possible that Jesus actually knows the owner. Uh, Mary, and, uh, Mary and Lazarus, they, they are from this town in Bethany. It might be them. But it also might be just some random person. I mean, they don't name them. But here, they realize that the king has given orders. And foundational of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be under the rule and reign of the king, is that we obey the king. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 14 that you know that you love me if you obey my commands. And so here, King Jesus is giving commands to these disciples and then through them to this, uh, this owner of the donkey. And what do they do? They obey him. I mean, it might seem weird to them. They probably don't realize at the time what Jesus is about to show them, that he is the king, that he is fulfilling this, uh, this long-promised uh, prophecy. They just think Jesus is saying, I need this donkey. They might not understand all the reasons, but they do obey the king. And this is what it looks like for us to obey the king, to be followers of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, is to realize the basic foundational truth of the gospel is that we believe that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the king, and that we are not. And that as we see that Jesus is the king, that we obey his commands. And so I, I don't know what today, through his spirit, our king is impressing on you that you would obey him in. We know through his word what he does command us to do. Perhaps today it's some of the things that we've seen in our series that you wouldn't shun or avoid sinners, but rather that in this season of Advent, that you would pursue after the lost. Uh, maybe it's that you would see that you are part of God's kingdom and advancing his kingdom, being part of this local embassy of the kingdom of God in the church, whether that's through membership, that, whether that's beginning to serve, whether that's beginning to give, maybe that's joining a community group. Maybe it's looking like we saw uh, in, in earlier in Luke chapter 10, that we see those in need around us, that whoever is in need, our neighbor, that we would actually stop and love them and serve them just as Jesus has served us. I don't know what the king will have for you today and call you to obey in. But in that moment, in those moments, we'll be struck with a decision. Who will be the king? Will it be Jesus? Will we obey him? Will we show? Will we prove? Not earn, but will we show and prove our love to the king by obeying him? Or will we ultimately do exactly what the religious leaders are going to do in a moment? Will we silence him? Will we say, Jesus, we don't want to follow your way. You know what? I'd rather do my way. I'd rather live my way. I don't want to stop and help this person. I don't want to get involved into the kingdom of God. I don't want to share the gospel with those around me. Maybe next time. Friends, the way of Jesus is realizing his kingship and being under the rule and reign of Jesus and obeying him. 
Here, Jesus is saying the gospel, and he's now beginning to show it. Because they find this colt exactly like he promised. And they, verse 35, they brought it, the, the donkey, the colt, to Jesus. And what did they do? They threw their, colt, their cloaks on the colt, and they set Jesus on it. They take their cloaks. Now, in our culture, you probably have a lot of jackets, right? Maybe it's a hoodie. Maybe it's a, you know, you got your rain jacket. You got your wind jacket. You got your, uh, you got your, your fall jacket. You got your winter jacket. You don't want to get too hot, when, right? Or you don't want to be too cold. You got to have all of these jackets. Maybe even for Christmas. Again, maybe that's on your wish list this year. But in that day, likely, they had one cloak. This is a longer jacket. And it wasn't just used for a jacket. This is if you were traveling, and especially if you really didn't have a lot of money, which is the vast majority of people in that day, when you're traveling, this might turn out to be your blanket too. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. And what do they do with their cloaks? They turn it into a saddle for Jesus. But not just that. Then, verse 37, excuse me, verse 36, as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They don't just take their cloaks, their, this prized possession in many ways, and make it into a saddle. No, they put it on the ground. It turns into this red carpet for a donkey. Here, they are realizing and showing that Jesus is riding on this donkey that has never been rode on, meaning that it was set aside for a royal king. And here, they are laying out their cloaks, saying that, no, that you are not, that, that you, you have to sit on this cloak. You have to walk on this this red carpet of sorts with these cloaks. We don't even want you to touch the ground because you are worthy. You are the king. And here, then they even start crying out, showing that they really understand. They're starting to see these disciples, that Jesus is king. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, he sees Jerusalem right ahead of him. He's going down. The whole multitude of his disciples, not just the 12, but others around, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen that Jesus had taught in mighty ways with authority, that, they, that he had come in rebuke and corrected the religious leaders, that he had done miracle after miracle. And friends, for us today, if you are a disciple of Jesus, is this not our reality too? That we naturally rejoice and praise Jesus as king for what he has done for us. Because if you're t- here today in Christ, meaning you've repented, and are believing the gospel, the friends, Jesus has done such a mighty work for you. He has brought you from death to life. He has given you new eyes to see. He has given you ears to hear. He has brought you to life, forgiven you. Friends, the good news of the gospel is a miracle, and Jesus has done this great work for us. And as disciples, our natural reaction is to cry out and worship to Jesus. It's so easy, though, like on a Sunday morning or perhaps out in the community during the week to, to even feel silenced in this. To feel like, you know what, I, I don't feel like singing this morning. I'm just going to call out the dudes. This is typically a, a, a male problem. That oftentimes on a Sunday morning, what's our temptation? We're singing and just to stand here. Just to have our hands in our pockets, our arms folded, and not to sing out in light of what Jesus has done for us. You might say, Daniel, I have a horrible voice. You probably do. That's okay. (laughs) What is the point? That these people, in light of what Jesus has done for them, they can't help but to rejoice, to cry out and say, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has done this great work. 
Friends, this is what believers do. Why do you think we sing on Sunday mornings? It's because believers throughout the millennia, throughout centuries, they can't help but to sing out with a loud voice of what Jesus has done for them. That our King has come and He has saved us. How could we keep our mouths shut? And friends, this is how we, along with other believers and with our families, that we encourage one another. Because perhaps you've had the worst week. Perhaps because of sin or because of suffering. Friends, this is why we cry out with a voice. To be able to encourage, to be able to sing the gospel to one another. To share and to show that Jesus is king and I'm still clinging to this even if I don't feel it. These disciples, they get this. They're crying out, and it's beginning to spread to the crowd, even those that aren't disciples yet. That's why some of these people, just a few days later, will actually turn on Jesus and eventually destroy and kill him. It says, though, that they are crying out. Verse 38 tells you exactly what they're saying, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, you are king. You are blessed. You are worthy to be worshiped. And then notice the next sentence. It's probably going to sound really familiar. Do do you recognize from where? He says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It sounds an awful lot like a really famous Advent passage, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 2, you see this whole host of angels, this army of angels. And what do they say? They're singing. They're crying out, glory to the highest, peace on earth to those whom God has favor. Here, at the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, his ministry, his, ministry, his mission to pursue after and ultimately die in the place of sinners begins with this calling by angels. And now his disciples are crying out these same words at the end of his life, saying that Jesus is king, glory to the highest, and he is bringing peace because he is peace himself. This is what these disciples are crying out. And it's beginning to spread to the crowd, even people that don't believe this yet, and some that ultimately won't. And the religious leaders, they can't stand this. They can't have it. And as you would expect, they respond out of religion. Verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Notice how they reference Jesus, how they call to him, how they begin the conversation. Everyone's calling him king. They don't call him king. They don't even call him Jesus. They just say, teacher, rebuke, call them out. Say, you can't call me king. There's only one king. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's actually kind of funny. I don't know if you see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you don't realize who I am, do you? You think that you have everything figured out. But in fact, you don't. In fact, these stones know more than you. You quite literally are dumber than rocks, is what Jesus is saying. That you're not crying out. These disciples are. And you know what? If they were quiet, these rocks know. They would cry out. You're totally missing the point that I am saying and showing that I am the king, Jesus says. But they've missed it. They're silencing Jesus. And friends, this is what religion does. It doesn't just look different. It doesn't just avoid people or act cruel in certain ways or demand perfection when they themselves aren't. It doesn't compare themselves in in sinful ways. No, it doesn't just do those things. Eventually, it begins to silence Jesus and to say, you know what, you're not the king, but I am, and I don't want to have anything to do with you. 
Friends, it's so easy, whether it's in sharing the gospel with people, to, to be silenced, for our rejoicing to, to stop. It's so easy when we have these commands from the king to feel silenced. Feel like, you know what, I, I, I would rather not obey Jesus today. When we don't obey the king, but rather fall to the silence, we're falling to the way of religion. We're falling away from following the king himself. And falling just into the trap that the Pharisees are. And Jesus, he calls them out for us. He says that this is what all creation will one day do. It will worship me. It will cry out to me. And then Jesus, he continues on his way. And here, Jesus is going to show us his heart. He's right on the cusps. He's about to enter into Jerusalem. His mission, all the way really from Luke chapter 9 now to Luke chapter 19, he's now made his way and he's right there at the edge. And we're going to get a glimpse into the heart of this king. We see that he is the king, but what really makes him tick? What's at the core of his heart? What does he care about? What does he love? What makes him weep? Verse 41. And when he drew near, he's right at the sign. He sees the city. He can see the base. He can see, he can see CNU. He can see city center. Whatever it is, he can see it right there. And what does he do? He weeps over it. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Why? Because he sees the brokenness and the pervasive lostness of the city. It says in verse 42, that, hey, you've been crying out, peace, peace in heaven. <laughs> Would that you, even you that are crying out peace, had known this day the things that make for peace. He's saying, you're crying out, peace in heaven. But I'm the prince of peace, and you don't even know what peace is. You've rejected me, he says. But now, peace, they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Jesus is prophesying. He's telling them what's going to happen. Just decades later, in AD 70, quite literally, quite historically, that Jerusalem was destroyed. That Jesus here, he calls it. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. That oftentimes in a city, that an army would come and surround this walled city. They would then choke it out. They would starve it. And then they would come in and ambush, taking it over. And that they wouldn't just encircle them, but then they would, verse 44, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will, leave, uh, and they will not leave one stone upon another. They will tear everything down in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't see me, Jesus, the King, and receive me. He rejected me. You didn't repent and follow the King. No, you rejected the Prince of Peace. But what does Jesus do? Remember, how does he respond in light of knowing what will happen? Does he sit there with indignation? Does he sit there uh, comparing himself and saying, oh, what have you done? Let me just call fire down from heaven now. No, he weeps. Like Jesus, he stops and he's riding in. He's crying. Just tears are flowing down his face. He, he can't even really see straight anymore because he's crying so hard. He's struggling to breathe because he's crying and weeping. And it's because he sees the city and he sees every single person there that's rejecting him. Friends, our, our king doesn't desire that 
anyone would perish. But he knows that many will. That many will reject him. And he doesn't just love Jerusalem. Friends, he loves, as he tells and commands his disciples in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. Our king is a king who loves people, and he loves cities. In fact, we'll see at the very end of the Bible that he comes and makes a new city, New Jerusalem. Here, our king is showing his heart for the city, that he loves the city. He loves the people there. So he sees the 180,000 people in Newport News, and he knows the stats. He knows them so much more than we do, but that at least three-fourths do not know Jesus. Sats would tell us that, and the reality is we know that it's actually much worse than that. But that means that at bare minimum, that there's 135,000 people at your work, at your children's school, your neighbor, the person around the corner, the students at the school, that don't know Jesus. That just at CNU, this city within a city right around the corner of 5,000 students, that at least 4,000 are separated from the king, are rejecting him. Friends, when Jesus sees this, he weeps. Our king hates this. And this is why he came. To bring this message of the kingdom. To proclaim his good news of the gospel. And call those to repentance. And so friends, we, as we follow the king, as we are under his rule and reign, not of the silencing of religion, but rather following the king, that we too have a heart like Jesus. That we have a burden, that we have a a breaking heart, that we have a weeping heart over the lost around us. That when we see our neighbor, when we see the person at the base, when we see the person at work, when we see our family member, when we see the college student, that we weep and we show them Christ. We point them to the king. Friends, the heart of a disciple looks more and more like the heart of their king. So when was the last time you wept over our city? When was the last time you saw the lost in the student, in your coworker, in your neighbor? And you lost an ounce of sleep because they don't know Jesus. As we pursue Christ, our King, friends, He will give us a heart. Asking Him, begging Him to give us a broken heart for the lost. To pursue after them. Not to reject them, not to avoid them, but to to pursue those around us for the sake of the gospel. Friends, this is who our King is. He is now on the edge of Jerusalem and He has a breaking heart. And He's now entering in. And the first thing likely that he does is he goes straight to the temple. He's been to the temple before as a boy and then probably later than at the beginning of his ministry. And there in, in uh, really the beginning of the Gospels, you see exactly how Jesus responds. He sees that people are taking advantage of other people. And what does he do? He flips the tables, right? He sends them out. And Jesus knows and, and is expecting that this is going to happen again. And we'll see here in just a second. That's exactly what happened. You see, there in in that time, you would go to the temple to do what? To worship God. 
And so there were a lot of things you might do. You might have these ceremonial cleansings. You might have prayers. You might share the gospel with people that are outsiders. There was an outer court that even Gentiles, non-believers, could go in, and you would share the gospel with them as they were curious about hearing more. And then as you went more and more into these inner courts, these inner areas, it would be holier and holier until you got into this holy of holies that only one person one time a year could go in. But in these outer courts and all these areas was this place of worship to God. And if you were traveling in, you might not be able to take a a sacrifice with you. But maybe you were making a pilgrimage. You were traveling in to worship God at the temple. But you didn't have room. So what would you do? Well, they made concessions. They made a way where you could actually buy some pigeons or some lambs or whatever it might be. Or maybe trade for something like that. Because, again, you you probably don't have room for those things. I, I don't know about you, but Chris and I, we, we were just traveling for Thanksgiving, and whenever we travel, we bring a lot of stuff, all right? We, we, we have some room, so we're like, hey, let's fill up the car. But it's gotten way worse now that we have James. I don't know why such a small human being can take up so much space with, uh, with storage, but man, he sure does. I can bring just one bag, and then James has like three or four bags, right? You've got to have the sound machine. You've got to you have the baby monitor. You've got to have the humidifier if they're sick. You've got to have the extra clothes, and then the extra clothes for the extra clothes when they spit up. You've got to have all the diapers. You've got to have all the things, right? There's just, just so many things. It's just ridiculous when you, when you have a kiddo, let alone the pack and play, and then the bouncer, and then the stroller, right? There's no room. They don't have room to bring, uh, again, a lamb or pigeon. So they go to the temple and they buy these things so they can make the sacrifice there. But when Jesus shows up, he sees the wickedness that the religious leaders have done. They brought in, really, this idea of being a tax collector. That they don't just sell a pigeon for whatever, $10. They say, no, you know what, it's $12 now. You know what, it's $15 now. And they're pocketing it. And Jesus sees this wickedness that the religious leaders have quite literally shown the reversal of the book of Luke. That the religious leaders have now become the tax collectors. But the tax collectors, notice what they do. They actually pursue after Jesus. But Jesus comes in and he clears house. Verse 40, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 45. So he knows this. He sees this. He's expecting this because he saw it earlier in his ministry. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. He says, get out of here, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers, the area where it should be prayer, an area where it should be proclaiming the gospel to the lost. You have turned it into a place of arguing, of lack of peace, of a place of ripping people off. He says, get out of here. And then, verse 47 He establishes and reestablishes, rather, what the temple was for. He was teaching daily in the temple. You see, Jesus, he establishes the rhythms that we still do today. You want to know why Acts chapter 2, why the early church does what it does, and why we do what we do? It's really because this is what Jesus does. He establishes that the kingdom of God, they're worshiping in this temple. That they are surrounded around the teachings of Jesus in this area of prayer, in this fellowship, this community together. Friends, that's why the early church was devoted to what? The apostles' teaching, the gospel message, the fellowship, the breaking of of bread, and the prayers. It's why we are a gospel people, a gospel community on mission together, serving and loving one another on mission for our city together. It's because this is what Jesus did. 
It's because that's what the church in Acts chapter 2 did. But the religious people, they've had enough with Jesus. Because they didn't just call them out. He didn't just embarrass them in front of other people. But now he's taking away their God. You see, he came in and he removed where they were getting money. And if you want to know what your God is, really who your king is, it's been said, just look at your wallet and your watch. Look at your credit card and your calendar, your time and your money, and you'll see it. Just take inventory of that. Look actually at your bank statement or your credit card statement. Look at your calendar. What did you spend time on? What did you think on? What naturally comes to your heart? What do you spend money on? And friends, these religious leaders, their heart shows that they aren't worshiping Jesus. No, they themselves, they are the king of their life. And so they've had enough. They, the chief priests, the scribes, the principal men, those who should see the king and be worshiping him, they were seeking to destroy him. They wanted Jesus dead. And we know exactly what does happen, right? Spoiler alert. They do kill him. It takes a few days, though. Verse 48 says, but they did not find anything they could do in that moment for all the people were hanging on his words. Those around were hearing the gospel, and some, we can assume, did in fact go from rejecting Jesus to now repenting and following Jesus. But the religious leaders did not. No, they found a way just a few short days later, through Judas, through Pilate, to have Jesus destroyed, to have him killed. And they, I'm sure, thought that they had won. That finally this just horrible man, this, this big uh, enemy of ours, this person who's just coming at us and taking away everything that we know, he's gone. We have destroyed him. Not knowing that Jesus came to be the reverse of everything that they expected. That know that they didn't destroy Jesus, but that Jesus came and willingly suffered and died. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And he ultimately sacrificed and suffered on the cross. Jesus, you see, was walking, uh, was there and he was taken. Went under this false trial, was beaten, was mocked. He then was beaten to a pulp. Should have died just from the beating. They then took a crown of thorns and wrapped it around and around and pulled it tight on his head. And he took a beam of hundreds of pounds and took it through the city, up the hill, the place of the skull. Was stripped naked, embarrassment in front of everyone. Then they nailed strong, hard, long nails through his arms, through his feet. And then dropped him into a hole where the beam would then fall down. And Jesus suffered and he died. And why did he do this? Why would Jesus allow this to happen? It's friends because he sees and he weeps over the sinful and religious hearts that are rejecting him. And he doesn't just weep for them, but he suffers and dies for them. 
all the way to the cross. And that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just die, but that He, three days later, He raises from the dead. He walks out of the grave, making it possible that anyone who repents and believes, that they would be forgiven. That anyone who has been rejecting Christ, who has been following the way of religion, and repents and turns to the King, follows King Jesus, obeying Him, would be given life, would be given freedom. That they wouldn't die, but that Jesus took their place on the cross, taking all of their sin, all of your unrighteousness, all of your self-righteousness, all of your religion on Himself. And He frees you to not be tied down, not be defined by a religious heart who is only searching to find satisfaction, to find forgiveness, to find heaven one day, to find favor with God, but to be freed, to live with and rejoice in the King. Friends, this is what our King did. Our King Jesus died in your place to free you from religion and to bring you into His kingdom. And part of His grand mission, the one that continues to weep over our city, to weep over Hampton Roads, to weep over our country, to weep over our world. And we as a gospel people, who are not defined by religion, but instead those who repent and believe, defined by the King, defined by being part of His kingdom, would go forth, would take this gospel message to the dying and lost, to those who are falling to the lies of religion, And friends, Jesus, He will save. He will continue to do this work. He is advancing His gospel. and He has done something about the religion because He came and suffered and died. And that's great news for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus' way is the reverse of religion. Because we have searched it, we have looked at it, we have studied it for two and a half months and it is found wanting. It is bankrupt. It is worthless. But Jesus' way is full of peace. It is full of glory and He is the King. Father, I pray that anyone here who has been rejecting Jesus, that today would be the day that they would not reject Jesus, but repent and follow Jesus. I pray for us, the saints, that we would continue to obey Jesus, continuing to repent of the ways that religion will creep up in our hearts, that it wants to silence Jesus, even destroy Jesus, but that we would obey our King, that we would go out on mission, that, your heart, that our hearts would break for our city. Father, would you give us a heart for the lost? Give us a heart for the college student that is far from Christ. Give us a heart for, for the military worker who is dead in their sin. Give us a heart for our neighbor for our coworker, Father, and that we would go out in action, that we would take the gospel to the lost, and we would see dead men and women come to life. We thank you that through Jesus' work, you have freed us from the chains of religion. Help us to live in the freedom that now comes as we worship our King. In Jesus' name. Amen.